Welcome to Grid Forward Chats. Today we have a special episode, a re-airing of one of our favorite podcasts. Laurent Segalon and Gerard Reed have a podcast that covers European energy dynamics called Redefining Energy. It's one of our favorites. In one of their latest episodes, they have the CEO of E.ON, Leo Birnbaum. Uh, E.ON is one of the largest uh, conglomerate utilities in Europe um, with headquarters in Germany and other uh, locations. Listen in for this great conversation. Today on Redefining Energy, we'll go live from Brussels, where we have an exceptional interview with Leo Birnbaum, the CEO of E.ON, a new president of Euroelectric. But first, a word from our new partner. This podcast is powered by Axpo, an international leader in providing sustainable energy solutions for the future. In the Nordics, Axpo has been a pioneer within trading and origination services for the last 20 years. Yeah, Axpo, we're really glad to have them as a partner, a very robust Swiss utility. We're very glad. So back to the conversation. We've been invited by Christian Ruby and Bruce Douglas, uh, Emily O'Leary, the fantastic team of Your Electric, to have a podcast recording with Leo Birnbaum. And the setup was kind of strange because we were in the middle of this gigantic tour and taxi hall and we were in a fish tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was actually a cool fish tank because that particular day, oh my God, it was warm and there was no air conditioning anywhere except where we were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were a lot of spectators, but they didn't put the loudspeaker. So <laughs> whatever we said. So now you have the sound. You deserve the sound because that interview was really fantastic. It was fun. I like Leo a lot. It makes it easier when you like someone, right? When you get on with, because he's very open with us and we were very open. And likewise. For our American listeners who don't know Europe, first we have Euroelectric, which is the association who gathers all the production, distribution and everything of energy on the continent. So it's a very, very powerful business organization. And Leo is also the CEO of E.ON, which is a gigantic German utility. Do you want to talk a bit more about E.ON? Well, E.ON's the biggest retail utility in Europe in terms of customers. And it's also a distribution grid operator across the continent, mainly in the German markets, but also in other markets as well. So it's a really interesting business. It is. And of course, so what we're going to talk about with Leo, well, first, we're going to start at, you know, energy crisis with Ukraine and how did they react on a day-to-day basis? Because some energy companies did very well out of it and some very poorly. And I would say Eon did pretty well. And then we'll come around what is their three main axes of work in the coming years. Well, listen, why don't we listen to the interview? Welcome to Redefining Energy, live from Brussels with a fantastic guest, Leo Birnbaum. My pleasure, colleagues. Nice to be here. Good to see you again. Absolutely, pleasure is on my side. Long time since we met in this group. Exactly. So it was two years ago you came on our podcast and since a lot of things have happened in the energy sector and Charles, what's your first question? Yeah, I'd love to hear your reflections on last year, actually. The whole crisis that we've gone through and, and how you see things going forward, actually. A short question for the beginning. So first, how does one look at the last year? It's, it's horrific. We're going to talk about what it meant for the energy sector, but in reality, it's a tragedy what we have observed uh, last year. Now, in every negative, there's something positive. Europe has risen up to a certain extent to this challenge, which was inflicted upon us by the Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine. And we have shown 
in a surprising way, first, that uh, Europe is the solution and not the problem. And so in that sense, the first learning that we got together, we are stronger. Mm -hmm. And only together can we actually manage challenges like the one which is being thrown into our direction by the war. But it's the same is true for climate action. Also, only together can we sort out climate action. So maybe it's even, you know, like the last year, it's even a test run what we should be able to do. So the last year was a test outcome. We are now much better prepared than we have been last year. Last year in April, March, April, we didn't have processes. We didn't have systems. We had an empty storage. We didn't know how to communicate. Partially, we didn't have the legislation which we needed. So it was all in flux. This year, we have all of that. We have better storage, established processes, communication, etc. So I think we are much better shaped than last year. So I'm optimistic that we can manage the situation going forward. Now, what has also happened is we only managed the crisis. We didn't structurally solve it. Now, this is the task now going forward. And this is really what we need to discuss. How do we long-term really solve the issue and not only manage the crisis for one year, for two years and for three years? Yeah? But again, the progress uh, since last year is remarkable. And we can take encouragement from that in the way that we have seen cooperation, which I didn't believe uh, before. Yeah. So as a president of your electric, you have all your members and some has done extremely well and some have suffered a lot and have been bailed out. So it's a bit of a redistribution of the cards. And of course, Ian, you're probably going to tell us if you find yourself stronger after the crisis. Uh, what's your uh, interpretation? One should not be too arrogant. In such a crisis, you also need luck. Uh, and we were lucky, for example, with a warm winter. The warm winter actually meant that we managed to get through without spikes, cold spells and so on, which would have been a real commercial disaster this year. So one should be careful to say I did fine, but E.ON did fine. We are actually getting out of this crisis, I believe, stronger than we went into the crisis. But... Only because I, I think what we can take credit for is that we started earlier. We started crisis meetings, daily crisis meetings in uh, November 21. So four months before the war broke out because we felt something is happening. Can I say just is that because of the changes in the gas markets or was it because of the fact that you sort of got word from Russia, Ukraine? No, because of the, we looked at the markets, we, we knew as much as anybody else. So we didn't have any insight that was secretly conveyed to us. We had the same perspective and then we thought, oh, something is happening. We need to prepare. And if something is happening, all that matters is speed. So we set up a crisis team and we said, we need now to get into a different discussion mode and different reaction mode, different agility. And in the end, speed was what really made the difference when the crisis really materialized. The second thing we said is, Speed really means we need to be able to take decisions, I mean, fundamental decisions on a daily basis. It can't be that somebody makes a proposal, it goes to the board, and then it goes to the risk committee, and then four weeks later we react. If the crisis is materializing, we need to be faster. So that is the second thing we did. And then were the two actions which really made a difference for E.ON on the commercial side. And then in the end, we did much more things right than wrong. And every mistake is triple digit million, but everything you do right is also triple digit million. Since we did more positive than negative, in the end, actually our results were strong. So are we getting out stronger? I believe 
the good companies must have an aspiration to get out stronger out of a crisis. For them, a crisis is an opportunity and should be an opportunity. For weaker companies who are not set up, the crisis will actually make them even weaker. Can I ask then, just as you look at it, Jan, you would have had learnings from it. And I suppose my question is really, does, do those learnings bring about changes in your strategy going forward? Or you just say, no, it's all about the same. We just keep executing what we planned before the crisis. The big learning is speed. So the second learning is if you have a weakness and you tolerate it when times are good, that's fine. Probably the weakness won't hurt you a lot. But when the crisis hits you, a weakness is expensive. So if you need to do something, just get it done. The faster you get it done, the better. And if you get it done before the crisis, even better. Yeah, so that was my second learning. So we had some decisions where we said, ah, we should have done that earlier. We knew that this was not our strong, but somehow other things. So don't tolerate weaknesses and be fast. So this, those are my two big learnings from the crisis. On the strategy, no, actually. What was our capital market story? which we presented actually briefly before we started our crisis meetings, it was, we are looking at a decade of growth, which is driven by the quest for sustainability or decarbonization, and it will require full digitization of all the systems and processes. This story is completely intact. Actually, it's even more true than before. And we have seen the requests and the requirements for investments going up even more. Can I ask you one other question just on the strategy, which is the one change that I think that's t come about. Sorry, Laurent. <laughs> <laughs> one, thing, one change I think that's come around, which is that now I think this energy transition has become about the customer. So the question I'd ask is whether you're customer-centric enough or do you have to change the way you do things? How do you, how do you feel about that relationship to the end customer now? We have seen now in the last months, maybe an increasing discussion. What is it that customers really can manage, can support? How much volatility can they be exposed to? And that is something that needs to be on our mind. But the reality is in the crisis, we felt as long as we really went the last mile to explain what is happening, uh, explain why we're struggling, customers really accepted it. We were actually blamed less for high prices with the price level of 22 than we were blamed for much lower prices years before. So to a surprising extent, customers tolerated the outcome of the crisis. That was number one. And they even gave us credit for us trying to manage it, despite the fact that it's a real hardship for many customers. But for example, I'll give you one. We hired an additional 500 call agents just to explain the stuff that we are doing because the call volume which we got was just increasing massively despite also the digital channels increasing massively. So the need to communicate is massive. But if you do that, then actually customers understand that obviously a crisis, a global crisis cannot just be weathered off by a private company. So you talk about prices, and of course, for 10 years, we had market prices anywhere between 50 and 70 euro per megawatt hour, and everybody thought that would be the end of history. And of, of course, last August, we climbed to, what, Chad, 1,000 euro, 1,100. And of course, all of a sudden, the politician starts getting very agitated, for right or wrong. And they want to reform the market. And we've seen everybody coming with their brilliant idea. And somehow we are into thinking about an energy market reform. Because, of course, why should the gas be the marginal pricing? And, of course, renewables. 
and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we heard it a hundred times. So, and here I'm talking about your electric and your position in general. What do you want to say about all the attempts right now at energy market design reform? I'll try to answer without now getting into the details of the daily discussion, which is then outdated by tomorrow. <laughs> so number one, the European market has saved us. If we wouldn't have had a European Agreed. market, Agreed. right? The French got the electricity from the European market, which they didn't have. The Germans got the access to infrastructure, which they didn't have. The Eastern Europeans were depending on us anyway, on the West supplying to the East. And so the European market was key. The first insight is we need to preserve the European market. Now, second comment, at prices of 1,100 or whatever the prices are, the market will break apart because that's an unsustainable price level. I can't hedge at 1,000 euros per megawatt hour because I would just be locking in positions which I couldn't charge to my customers. Mm. You know, the bad debt would rise to a level which would be impossible to bear for all the retailers. So if that price level would have persisted, the market would have broken apart. Therefore, number three, it's clear that the discussion around the market design reforms was started and triggered by this. It got luckily into, a, let me call it, better environment. Prices went down significantly in September, October. And so we got now a reasonable consultation. What could we do to amend the market to make it stronger going forward? And we got a very reasonable consultation by the EU Commission exactly in that direction. And fourth, the Commission then made a reasonable proposal for amendments. We, as Euroelectric, said the glass is half full. That makes sense. And fifth, this is never the end of the story in, in Europe, because then even if the proposal is reasonable, then the trilogue starts. The EU Parliament comes in, and now we're in the middle of seeing whether the final outcome of this whole process will really strengthen the market or will introduce elements which are detrimental for the development of the market. Both are actually still possible outcomes. We will see how this works out in the next weeks. We're going to talk about the future now. And you just published a manifesto. Nobody talks about manifesto. I mean, Karl Marx did a manifesto at some point. Okay, so whatever. Okay. Whatever. But if people talk about my manifesto in 150 years, I would be positively surprised. <laughs> Can you summarize the key points you see in that manifesto? Because there is, okay, there is the classic thing about humanization, stabilization, and so on. But there are some new things which are really interesting, a bit innovative. So yep. let, let's talk about what's new. Yeah. And maybe just to start, we had a strong focus as Euroelectric always on the story that electrification is mm, really the path forward and the solution. And so we had previous manifestos, which were really emphasizing this point, electrification is the solution. Now, what we are saying in this manifesto is, is three things. Number one is security of supply is back on the agenda. Mm -hmm. It was not considered a critical target or whatever. It was taken as a given. And we are saying, no, it's not a given. It's back on the agenda. And electrification done in the right way is one way of producing the security of supply and the decarbonization. So we should just accelerate on the path on which we have been on. But we should be mindful of security of supply as an issue and not just take it for granted. So that's number one. And that requires also appropriate market design, long-term incentive signals, all the good stuff which we need for the development of an electrified future, which includes much more renewables, etc. Mm -hmm. 
So that's number one. Number two, we said, we have to be clear that the new bottleneck is grids are the new permitting. The infrastructure on which this energy transition happens needs to be strengthened. We are going to hit constraints if we accelerate e-mobility, which e-mobility happens in the infrastructure, in the low voltage infrastructure, actually. If we actually electrify heat now massively, as we are discussing, if we integrate massively more renewable at a speed which is completely unprecedented. So we need to make sure that we actually provide the infrastructure for that. And that is not a given anymore because we have eaten through the reserves which we had in the infrastructure. So we have second focus. We really need to look at a much more strengthened, fully digitized infrastructure. And the third point is we said we need to look at fairness. And we consciously chose fairness because, you know, affordability then becomes a price discussion, competitiveness becomes a difficult discussion between sectors. We said, no, it's about the fairness. There's a distribution of burden and opportunities between investors, customers, and for example, the state, if the state takes some risks. And we need to make sure that we get a fair distribution to make viable businesses so that the market, which we want to work, really can work. And it's not just about protecting vulnerable customers, that's part of it, but it's also about protecting investors so that they keep the confidence and continue to provide huge amounts of capex. It's about the state, which shouldn't provide free lunches, but on the other side, you know, like needs probably to take some of the risks. And so those are the three elements. Security of supply is back on the agenda, pushes the old agenda of electrification, stronger and more digital infrastructure, and a fair deal for all parties that need to deliver. Can I jump on digitalization? Because the last time we spoke, I mean, you really got emotional about smart meters, right? About smart meters in Germany, to it, be more specific. Exactly, smart meters in Germany. But I think one of the other reflections I have, and I see all these minus prices in the markets almost every second week now, you sort of go, we need flexible tariffs in this. We need much more flexibility. And that flexibility for me is about digitalization. But I'd, that's how I'd see it. I'd love to how, you, how you'd see it. And how important you see that? Absolutely. We talk a lot about capacity mechanisms. I would rather say we need flexibility mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, you like it. Because capacity is like power stations. So I think flexibility is demand response, demand side management, it's integration. and, And it's absolutely clear if you think about it, millions of participants participating in this market, bidding, not bidding. We can do that only if our systems are fully transparent at any moment in time, and if we have them under full digital control. And so anybody who just believes that we can even run manually the systems of the future, no way, no way. So digitization is an absolute requirement for our, let's call it, flexibility reserve markets or whatever you want to call it. We like it, we like it. (laughs) We like it a lot. And to pursue on the same theme, there is a concept which we didn't have two years ago, is that 24-7 traceability, the energy tag, granularity. Everybody has a different name for that, but it's the, it's the capacity to track every electrons, where they come from, where they were emitted. So when all those companies say, oh yeah, we're super green, they need to prove it not once a year, but by the hour. How do you see that movement evolving? Well, that's another one, again, which you can only solve if you digitize the whole thing. Ah, yes, 100%. And, and we have such efforts in the automotive industry, you know, where they want to then be able to trace their supply chain. 
Catena X is a big mm. effort supported by the German government and the car industry and SAP and others. And we have the same requirements here. So we as E.ON, we are trying with an industry consortia to actually set up something exactly like that for voluntary carbon credits. Because uh -huh. there, for example, we need to be able to establish a standard and then to show and prove that standard. So that is just, just another requirement. As so like, It's not that our task is getting more difficult by the day. On top, yeah. the request for transparency, etc., is increasing. So just one more reason to use <laughs> as much as digitization, AI, and whatever you can get as possible. It's soon time to conclude. Jared, do you have a last question well, I'd, for you? I'd love to just talk about mobility. And if I look at mobility, for me, what we really need to do is make sure as much intelligence as possible in the whole mobility charging area. And you've got vehicle to grid coming, et cetera, et cetera. And you've made a big push in this area. So I'd love to hear your views on it and how you see the future of it. In a general terms, that's one of the sources of flexibility that we're getting. It's clear if you get e-mobility in, that is one source of flexibility. And for example, it's one of the big debates which we're having right now in Germany. So do we need, for example, in the grid to provide whatever requirements in power at any point in time, at any place? Or can we actually control and steer that and then maybe do trade-offs in the CapEx investments that we're making? Mm -hmm. Personally, I think this flexibility which we need as grids is the price for a fast rollout of the energy transition. Mm -hmm. The faster we That's move, the more compromises we need to make. And if then anybody says, I don't accept any bottleneck at any point in time anywhere, then it just means we need to invest like hell at a speed which we can't cope with. So flexibility in the end will be the solution for that, not only for security of supply, but also for the speed at which we can drive the energy transition. So flex is really a word which has multiple angles under which you have to actually look at it. That's exactly what Jigarsha said on episode 100. If we said yes to everybody, we would need to invest three times. And I believe we can invest 1.8 times, which is already going to be a lot, but with compromises that mm -hmm. will need to be done yeah, okay. because we can't say yes to everyone. Just share one experience. I did a, a field visit in one of my grid areas and we discussed that we get actually a bigger change in the medium voltage than in the low voltage. Yes, in low voltage, we get the wall boxes and mm -hmm. so on and we get all these new connections and the rooftop PV, it's all fine. But what really changes is all, I mean really all the medium voltage transformers. Why? Because right now, no customer has any incentive to actually optimize for the capacities requesting. So if we have somebody in Germany under the current regulation who's building an apartment block, he just puts on every parking spot a charger. And then he says, I need 22 kV for every charger. And that's a new medium voltage transformer that we need then. So actually, we need to get smarter because otherwise we will really run into trouble. The same is true, by the way, like the same transformer who's supplying to 1,000 people, let's say a megawatt or so, and then we put a small transformer there. When they all built their rooftop PV, the same transformer in one direction still needs one megawatt, in the other direction needs six megawatt. Yeah? Yeah. And so all of a sudden, it means we need to replace every single asset already today. If we now do that in a reckless way, then actually we'll just not be able to cope up with the speed that is developing. So it's essential. Flexibility and smart changes of the system are crucial. Can I ask, are, are the governments and regulators listening to you? Let's say we have good dialogues and then we hope in the end that they listen more often than they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's an excellent way to conclude. Leo, thank you so much for coming on our show. You're a great guest, and we thank your electric in this beautiful tour and taxi house to let us this great place to record, because we are the only guy with climatization here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Gerardo, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, Gerard, I would love all our interview to be as uh, smooth as this one. And it was live. And it was, it was live, live right? yeah, which is a tough exercise. It is because one of the things we pride ourselves with is that we want the people that we're interviewing to, to be open with us. And sometimes they've been in the past too open. Mm -hmm. But the advantage is being that because we're not live, we can take out what they've said. If they've said something which is goes against you know what their legal department says <laughs> or something, we can take it out and we will say no more than that, but we've had a few incidents yeah. of that. But you have to be careful. And Eon, as I said, I know Leo many years at this point in time, so it's, it's a really lovely conversation and I, it was great. Excellent. So I'm going to share a little fun fact. I don't know if it was before or after, but somebody heard my voice and he comes to me and says, oh, you're the podcast guy, you're the podcast guy. I say, yeah, yeah, I am. So Gerard. And I say, no, I'm not Gerard. I say, oh, you're the other guy. <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> I mean, it's great. It's a bit of a dose of humility. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> if, if we go back to the interview, the need for speed. Energy companies are very slow-moving animals, but when, sorry, shit hit the fan, which was the case, if you didn't react fast, if you didn't make daily decisions where well, you would have made those decisions in weeks or months, if you allow any weakness, all of a sudden they take huge proportions. And at the same time, forward-looking, digitization, security of supply, which now is the big theme, decarbonization. There's a lot of things to take away from that great interview. What I took away from it was this need for speed and to be really brave, especially in critical moments, and also What's important is to make sure that you have the information to be able to make the correct decisions. And I tell you, Laurent, what happened after, I won't say the name of this particular utility, but there's another European utility who, after the interview, I was in conversation with this particular executive. And I was telling him about the conversation with Leo and the fact that Leo was saying that it was all about information and not reactive, but being proactive. And this other particular utility executive, they didn't do that. And their share prices collapsed. Mm. And, and I wasn't criticizing him. I said, the issue is you didn't have the right information. And actually he said, you're absolutely right. We didn't have the right information. And in other words, they didn't understand what was going on in the gas markets in particular. Well, Leo was given the information beforehand, which was, listen, we think there's something going on here, which led them to sort of come up with internal crisis teams before really we had this full crisis. So they were able to prepare for it. And I, I thought that was really, really, really interesting. And by the way, if you look at the share price of Eon, mm -hmm. it recently hit a five-year high. Mm -hmm. So there you go. And there's many a utility in Europe where, you know, the share price are nowhere near where they were five years ago. And that says something. <laughs> oh, right. disappeared like EDF. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. disappeared Poof. like EDF. <laughs> Both. You know, it's true though, isn't it? Right. So I, I really thought, wow, well done. Again, share prices say a lot. Let's be clear. Share prices say it a lot. It does. More generally speaking, if you look at the European industry, it's great that you have such a great manager at the top of the European electricity industry. And by the way, you need to have a great team to do that because he can only be a great manager if he's given the necessary information to make those decisions. 
we don't get any money from Eon, so we just uh, <laughs> we just we just say that uh, really it's it's really what we think. Okay, Gerard, I like to thank again your electric for organizing. I, I think we'll be invited next year for Athens, which is going to be in May, and I'm, I guess we're going to go. I like the idea of Athens in May. <laughs> there, there are some seminars like Hydrogen where I'm never invited again, but here I guess we're, we're doing a, a good job if, if we are reinvited. I'd like to thank our new partner, Axpo, really very nice guys. You need to work more with Axpo because I, I believe they are excellent trader and analyst and also probably one of the best hydro specialist in Europe. So very interesting company. And Jad, I talk to you in two weeks time. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to Redefining Energy. Don't forget to rate the show and subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or the platform of your choice.